This is episode number 583 with Rongyao Huang, lead data scientist at CB Insights. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, Let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by the deeply insightful natural language processing expert, Rongyao Huang. Rongyao is lead data scientist at CB Insights, a real-time marketing intelligence platform based in New York. Previously, she worked as a data scientist at a number of other New York startups and as a quantitative research assistant at Columbia University. She holds a master's in research methodology and quantitative methods from Columbia. Today's episode is more on the technical side, so will appeal primarily to practicing data scientists. However, the second half of the episode does contain general sage guidance for anyone seeking to navigate career options, as well as to balance personal and professional obligations. In today's episode, Rongyao details the evolution of NLP techniques over the past decades through to the large transformer models of today. She talks about the practical implications of this dramatic NLP evolution, how the scaling law will impact NLP model capabilities over the coming decade, the major limitations of today's NLP approaches and how we might overcome them, her Bauhaus-inspired model for effective data science, her pathfinding model for making effective career choices, and her top tips for staying sane while juggling career and family. All right, you ready for this fun, content-rich episode? Let's go. Rongyao, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm so excited you're here. You are this outstanding speaker that I was introduced to at the machine learning conference in New York. Um, so we did the first ever live filmed episode of Super Data Science at that. Um, so in it, uh, we had Noam Brown uh, in episode number 569. You can check that out, listeners. So that was the first episode filmed live with a live audience. And earlier in the day, before we recorded the Super Data Science episode, Rung Ya How to Talk. And it absolutely blew my socks off. I learned so much. And so I asked Rongyao right away if she'd like to be on the show. And now here she is for you. So Rongyao, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Where in the world are you calling in from? I am calling in from the least New York City of New York City, <laughs> <laughs> which is Staten Island. Oh, I almost guessed that. <laughs> um, I had a feeling, but that's probably pretty nice. You probably have a backyard. Oh, I do. I moved oh. in here for the space and I do have a lot of them. <laughs> Lucky. Do you have a do you have a car? Oh yeah, I have my driveway. Wow. <laughs> you have a driveway. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, I don't know anybody in New York with a driveway. That is pretty cool. Um, well, so welcome. I'm not far away from you in Manhattan. I'm in lower Manhattan, not too far from Staten Island. Mm -hmm. Um and yeah, so excited to have you on. I would love to just dig right into your talk. Um, I think like I learned so much. I'd love the audience to hear about your talk as well. So 
you've been working on natural language processing for about seven years. And in those seven years, there's been a huge amount of space in NLP technology and what we've been doing in research uh, and the applications that have made their way into consumer technologies. And so in your presentation at MLConf, as well as in a Medium article, which we will link to in the show notes, you compare this transition uh, in natural language processing to going from prehistoric to the Bronze Age um, uh, of human history. And so can you elaborate for us on what you mean by that and what you talked about in, at MLConf? Sure. Um, it's a very broad topic, but just to give a little bit of a personal reference, I started my career in data science about seven, eight years ago. And back then, if you look at all these subdomains within machine learning or AI, whether it's computer vision or NLP or other methods, they're kind of like moving along in a, at the same pace, right? Um, so if you um, ask any data scientists back then, oh, you're working on NLP, uh, what methods are you using? You're going to be hearing words like uh, TFIDF, I'm doing structural topic modeling and all that. Um, but things really started to change, I would say, since 2018. And that's what I call like we're entering Bronze Age and we see this <laughs> huge explosion that happened in NLP. And the artifacts generated by that have since actually been benefiting all the subdomains within AI. And they're converging in terms of the methodology that you're using. So... Um, I don't know for our audience if you've heard of anything like uh, Elmo or Bird or GPT three. I bet you have because they're like out there, right, <laughs> in every single news article. So, what's really underneath are uh, large language models. Um, so you might ask, what are language models? These are actually um, usually deep networks that are able to encode amazing amount of information about uh, what I call human knowledge, but represented uh, in text or voice, right? And we've seen um, with the effective way of encoding information that is really a breakthrough in NLP, now that has been carried over to works in computer vision. And we are seeing um, increasingly multi-model generalists. There's actually a paper that just came out of DeepMind, I believe, uh, May 12th, uh, that it talks about a generalist agent, which is a uh, decoder-only transformer. And we're going to talk about that in a bit, what are transformers. Um, but it's a big transformer that is trained on vision, text, and also uh, control environments. So a lot of game playing, like Atari games and all that. It's trained in a multi-model way, and um, all of these tasks are handled by the same set of weights. Um, and it, it is for that reason, it's called a generalist. So you're seeing like uh, the breakthrough that happened in NLP has uh, transferred into all the other fields that have enabled increasing generalizability, which really is an early sign of AGI, in my opinion. Wow. So what you're saying is the transition from the uh, prehistoric age mm -hmm. to the Bronze Age was the development of these large 
NLP models, which typically are transformer models. Mm-hmm. Um, and so transformer is a particular kind of uh, component that we can cl- include in a deep learning model architecture. And so these large NLP transformers, they around 2018 started to become prominent architectures, like you mentioned, Elmo, and now more recently, GPT-3. Um, they transformed not only natural language processing, but lots of other fields like machine vision. And we're starting to see these multimodal models that in your view are a step towards AGI, artificial general intelligence, or an algorithm that has all of the learning capabilities of a adult person. That's um, right, yeah. Wow. And this very problem starts with um, representation of information, right? Or, or representation of human knowledge, which in the prehistoric time in NLP, uh, it, we're talking about a bag of words, right? This uh, right. high-dimensional space where each word in the vocabulary is its own dimension, and it's encoded as zeros and ones, so it's very sparse, and there is no innate relationship among them. And we kind of force that relationship statistically by, we, by looking at distribution of words in documents. Now, that is prehistoric, and the limitations are pretty obvious because if you think about how our brain represents knowledge or information, there is a lot of association between words, right? Mm -hmm. Every word carries with it a context, like the famous example in NLP would be uh, the bank of a river versus if you're going to a bank to deposit money. And Mm -hmm. we know the bank is different. But in the early days, when they're represented as bag of words, there's only one embedding uh, for every single word. Uh, so we, we know obviously something is missing. With the Stone Age, which we haven't talked about, uh, that started <laughs> off by uh, word to back and doc to back, and they're still popular right. right now, right? That started in 2013, and you start to see this distributed representation of words and what that means is simply, um, if you've learned a, a foreign language uh, or done like English exercise, there's those, those closed tasks where you mask out a word and you're asked to fill it in based on the context. So that is exactly what distributed representation is. You're representing a word by its context. And when we start to do that and train even a very simple model, like in the case of word to whack it's a single layer neural net not be more simple, right? Uh, it's still able to capture very interesting information um, in the syntax and, and the meaning. Right? Uh, I, I believe for a while, there are a lot of articles giving an example about this equation where you look at king versus queen and man versus woman, right. and you can do this uh, semantic um, subtraction or addition in the mm-hmm. vector space mm-hmm. to hop from like the conceptual universe, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And people are amazed by how uh, a very simple neural net are able to encode those information. Yeah. Uh, but that re- really is the start of uh, the power of distributed representation. Yeah, that, that was to make that example kind of con- concrete for listeners who aren't uh-huh. aware of it. If you, in one of these um, vector spaces, you find the so you can kind of imagine it like a 3D space because that's the most dimensions you could imagine it in your brain. <laughs> um, but in practice, this is a higher dimensional space. It might have 100 or 200 dimensions. 
but every word in your vocabulary gets a location in that high dimensional space. And so if you find the location of the word um, for king, you subtract the location for man, and you add the location for woman, you'll end up at uh, approximately the location of the word for queen. So queen is equal to king minus man plus woman. And then there's lots of fun kinds of examples of these kinds of things where you could say, um, okay, let's take Musk, subtract Tesla, and add Facebook, and you'll end up at Zuckerberg. Um, so yeah, there's this, this all these kinds of arithmetic uh, operations that you can do uh, in the space for encoding meaning. Anyway, I interrupted you because I think that's like a, yeah, just kind of give an example of, of what you mean by that. And, and that absolutely, this kind of the Stone Age, these kinds of vector-based representations as opposed to the really sparse, like you said, um, representations like bag of words in the prehistoric age, a huge jump forwards. Um, and yeah, so I don't know if you, if, if you remember where you were before I interrupted you. Um, yes, I was uh, closing up the Stone Age and about to move <laughs> into the Bronze Age. <laughs> nice. Exciting. Perfect. Eliminating unnecessary distractions is one of the central principles of my lifestyle. As such, I only subscribe to a handful of email newsletters, those that provide a massive signal-to-noise ratio. One of the very few that meet my strict criterion is the Data Science Insider. If you weren't aware of it already, the Data Science Insider is a 100% free newsletter that the Super Data Science team creates and sends out every Friday. We pore over all of the news and identify the most important breakthroughs in the fields of data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. The top five, simply five news items. The top five items are handpicked, the items that we're confident will be most relevant to your personal and professional growth. Each of the five articles is summarized into a standardized, easy-to-read format and then packed gently into a single email. This means that you don't have to go and read the whole article. You can read our summary and be up to speed on the latest and greatest data innovations in no time at all. That said, if any items do particularly tickle your fancy, then you can click through and read the full article. This is what I do. I skim the Data Science Insider newsletter every week. Those items that are relevant to me, I read the summary in full. And if that signals to me that I should be digging into the full original piece, for example, to pour over figures, equations, code, or experimental methodology, I click through and dig deep. So, if you'd like to get the best signal-to-noise ratio out there in data science, machine learning, and AI news, subscribe to the Data Science Insider, which is completely free and no strings attached, at superdatascience.com DSI. That's superdatascience.com slash D-S-I. And now, let's return to our amazing episode. Um, yeah, so that, um, so yeah, so even that jump from the prehistoric age of bag of words to the stone age of vector representations was massive and, for me, revolutionary in what I could do with natural language models at work and, and make available to our users. Um, so yeah. So tell us about that transition from uh, the Stone Age vector spaces to the Bronze Age of Transformers. Right. So that is when um, the scaling law kicks in, right? So with the Stone Age, we're really laying the foundation of now we're able to represent a word by its context. So we got context-aware embeddings of words. 
Mm. Now, going into Brown's age, um, instead of a single layer neural net, we have evolved into really deep neural networks that can be used to encode information. Because um, if you think about how scale impact the performance or capability of models, it's uh, useful to think about the, uh, I guess, biology uh, analogy. Like if you compare uh, a sea worm versus a, a frog versus a jellyfish versus an octopus and then a human uh, or elephant, if you think about the amount of neurons and the synapses in a, in a person's brain, that number does matter, right? Even if the mechanism is almost the same, but the sheer number of connections that you're able to use to encode information and to retrieve information, that is very important. So, um, and you will see that this trend has continued and will continue uh, from this point on uh, five, 10 years. That is actually a, a big piece of the um the AGI, I feel, is to continue climb up this curve of the scaling law. And um, mm -hmm. we, we might talk a little bit more about that in, in a bit. But coming back to the Browns age, I think um, really what has happened there is we take the context of where embedding that idea, we made it, uh, we, we scaled that up, right? We're able to encode information in huge networks that now have hundreds of millions of weights. And it has um, evolved very quickly because if you look at uh, the starting of 2018, you know, with BERT, we're looking at uh, hundreds million. And then if you look at now, how many parameters we have in these super models, you're looking at, 540 billion and above, right? right. So it and has, yeah. I think there's a Chinese one, Wudao 2.0, right? oh, yeah. with like over a trillion. Over a trillion, yes. So they're definitely getting bigger. And there are, I would say, different things happening um, beneath the, the, the statement, like models are getting bigger. Uh, one is that uh, you need to be able to effectively train these models, right? Um, and you need enough data to train these models. Because if you come from a statistical background, uh, in the textbook, you used to say, you know, the number of data points that you mm -hmm. use to fit the model mm -hmm. needs to be at least plus one, you know, more than the weights that you have. Otherwise, this is considered unestimatable because you don't have enough data estimated mm -hmm. but um in the world of uh deep learning this has kind of be like turned upside down right because right. you're talking about these uh hundreds of uh, billion parameter model that can be fine-tuned with a couple thousand data points which is unbelievable right. in the past right um and the reason uh this is happening uh is because of technology breakthroughs or methodology breakthroughs that happened in ai some of them are really old, like gradient descent. Like you, you hear people talking about them 10 years ago. They're still front and center. If you're learning about AI, this is the thing that you start with, right? Mm -hmm, How mm -hmm. great design work. Um, but there's also um, new things like uh, the attention mechanism. like, uh, And that is really at the core of transformer models is this a mechanism that people use to encode information effectively. Um, and by saying effective, uh, it's it's helpful to compare that with how we used to do it uh, in, in NLP, 
which is sequential, right? If you look at a model that's like LSTM, long short-term memory model, mm -hmm. you are feeding in word tokens one at a time, and then you're generating embedding that way. So this is computationally like sequential tasks that just take time to finish. Um, with the attention, you're able to uh, batch feed in your sequence of tasks, and they're going to travel through these layers of attention blocks in parallel. So even if you have a huge model and you have a lot of data to train it on, um, it's faster, actually, as compared to sequential uh, way of training. So that is one. And the second is um, when it comes time to training data, right? How do, where do we get a lot of training data for these deep models? And um, it used to be a barrier, I think, for a lot of people in data science. If you say, if you ask, uh, have you been doing like deep learning at all? Um, I think the honest answer would be for most people a no, because you simply do not have uh, that many labeled data in your pocket that you can even use to train a deep learning model. But that has changed, right? Uh, in a way, the uh, the transformer models and the paradigm shift it has brought into the world of NLP and data science has made a poor man's deep learning dream come true. Even if you don't have a lot of label data points, you just have a couple hundred, couple thousand, you can now entertain with really deep models, like uh, hundreds, millions parameters, and you will be able to get very good performance out of it. Um, so this is like the, the transfer learning or fine tuning part of the paradigm shift, uh, which we probably should spend a little more time on. But um, really the um, empowering people to use deep learning model that also come from these powerful pre-trained model that are pre-trained in a self-supervised fashion. So what that means is, uh, look, it, in order to encode all these human knowledge in the model, you don't even need a lot of people hand labeling the meaning of these sentences or these tokens, right? You could just take the entire corpus of text out there on the web and feed them into the model. And you use a very clever training techniques uh, that is masking, right? You're randomly taking out um, words from these training corpus and you ask the model to figure it out. And even though it seemed like a very simple training task, the model is actually learning a ton through this task. It's picking up the syntactic, the, uh, the semantic, and a lot more from this huge amount of uh, data that's unlabeled. Um, the model is self-supervising uh, in the training process. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I lost myself because I had so much in mind. Oh, sure. no. I, well, I can I can uh, kind of pick up a little bit there just with kind of summarizing some of the points that you were making. Yeah. Which is that, um, yeah, this idea of self-supervised learning allows these natural language models to train without label data because you're just you can just feed in all of the English language articles on Wikipedia or all of the English that you can find on the internet or all of the language you can find on the internet in any language. That's right. Um, and the bigger these models get, the more nuance you can get in your results um, as you use these larger and larger data sets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So these are the, um, I think, methodology uh, on like the algorithm side. There are also stuff happening on uh, like how do I more effectively utilize more distributed TPUs or GPUs, right? And that would um, uh, be the the pathway system research that came out also earlier uh, this year. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool stuff. We did a I did a five minute Friday episode, episode mm-hmm. number five sixty eight on Palm. Mm-hmm. On this, yeah. So tell us about it. It's super cool. Yeah, this that paper is like. Uh, look, I wanted to just get bigger, right? I want my model to get bigger because we are seeing clear benefit of scaling up the model. Um, so coming back to this point of the scaling law that mm-hmm. is really front and center in the evolution and the current development of AI is if you are to scale your computational resource, where do you allocate that to get the best performance right, out of your model? Right. You can either scale the number of parameters in your model. You could scale the amount of data you use to train, and you can uh, scale the uh, training iterations. All right, to to make it converge more. Right. So what people find is that scaling the model itself is uh, is orders of magnitudes more important than mm. scaling the data and iterations. So. You can uh, go from 100 million to 100 billion and trillion, and your data probably only increased by two magnitudes, and right. iterations are maybe even constant, right? You're not right. adding everything to converge, but you increased your model parameter by like six folds, and the performance absolutely skyrocketed. And you did not see any plateau either, which means you can just keep going. And that becomes a question of, uh, how do I make this feasible, right? How do I train such a huge model? And I believe this pathway system or um, methods that came out of the paper is to make it more practical to train huge models on distributed infrastructure. Right. So that is the breakthrough that this uh, Palm uh, model and, and system bring to us. And it's, it's also kind of cool because it creates like... Um, regions that are useful like in particular data flows so i i think kind of the idea i think you know this probably a lot better than i do but my my memory from having reading about palm Mm -hmm. is that it allows us to have parts of the neural network that are relevant to some task Mm -hmm. those can be those don't always need to be engaged like the kind of right yeah the, the typical way the typical with a neural network or these large transformer models mm-hmm. that aren't POM, you're typically, you're propagating information through all of your model parameters. But with POM, we sometimes don't, right? We, we only go to the, right. to the regions that could be most useful. Right, like sparsely activated, uh, huge network. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that is um, going to be a, area where a lot more in- innovation needs to happen before we get to um, the human performance level. And it carries a very interesting parallel with the system one and two uh, thinking in human oh, brain. Yeah. Daniel Kahneman. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, I've been like uh, brushing up on that book lately. Thinking and fast and slow. Thinking fast and slow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you... Well, for the for the audience, uh, there are two helpful um, 
what do you call that? Like little characters that you can <laughs> <laughs> use to help you understand how you bring functions. Mm-hmm. So the system one is this effortless uh, association machine that is responsible for achieving information and generate fast response, and it's always on and monitoring the environment, but it's sometimes stupid, <laughs> right? Um, and then system two is uh, effortful. Like uh, mm-hmm. I remember the author talking about like pupil dilation mm-hmm. whenever you uh, carry out uh, a mathematical computation, like right. a, a shift digit holding three numbers in your working memory type of thing. And how uh, system two can jump in to check on system one, mm-hmm. uh, but it's also lazy, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> if you think about that and what's happening um, in in AI, right? Starting with like these huge language models, and I think we are um, we had a breakthrough in our system one counterpart in AI, right? So you have these. Very deep models that are able to encode a lot of information and association, and uh, without doing any backprop, you can solicit information from it. Right? It's going to give you a quick answer. Well, it needs to get quicker, actually, as compared to human performance, which is the efficiency of inference. Talking about that aspect, uh, that needs to be still improved. But um, if you uh, they think about the fundamentals in these language models. It's more like uh, system one, right? Where you have encoded a huge amount of information, dissociation, and you can just uh, solicit answers in real time, real time uh, response. But uh, where is system two, right? And part of system two, I feel, is um, deliberate backprop, <laughs> right? Because uh, backprop is definitely more expensive than uh, feed forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so when your system two is engaged, it's like uh, I need to be optimizing given this objective and these set of variables. So I'm actually doing intense computation there. Mm-hmm. You're fine tuning your huge <laughs> network over here in real time when you engage your system two. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also about um, system two inter um, kind of planning things out for system one, right? I would like you to put these information in your working memory for fast retrieval, right? I would like you to recode these pathways because I've learned uh, new information. So um, it kind of struck me uh, one day when I was uh, reading the book that this is the analogy that we that we're seeing in AI. That's such a cool analogy. And for listeners out there, if you've ever been listening to an episode in the past and I said something wrong or really dumb <laughs> on air, it's it was my system one. Uh, <laughs> it was just it was just rolling on its own. I'm engaging in conversation for sometimes several hours at a time with our guests, and I'm taking notes at the same time. And my system one is doing its best. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm trying, uh, but yeah, sometimes my system two is too lazy <laughs> to come in and fix everything that system one is doing. So I'm sure there's been the occasional uh, mistake, but like that's an interesting example how like most of your conversation that you carry out, the vast majority of things like uh, you know your facial expressions, mm-hmm. your tone of voice, and even a lot of the content of what you're saying. Is your system one just like 
making lots of guesses. That's right. <laughs> um, and it's very rare that your system two comes in and slowly is like really focused on like, and sometimes I have to, like, I'm like, oh, what was the name of that model that just came out? Or who's the author of that paper? Mm -hmm. um, and so my, my system two is kind of kicking in consciously in the background while my system one is still talking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then right. I'm even more likely to make a mistake because system two isn't watching while my mouth is moving. Um, <laughs> and, and it's an evolutionary uh, advantage, right? To have a effortless system one. Oh, and yeah. that's how AI systems should be built too. Um, there is a real obstacle now when it comes to inference time uh, performance. It's like it, it's still too slow, right? You're able to encode a lot, but for example, in this uh, DeepMind paper uh, of the generalist agent, they're using a very small model. Um, I believe it's like 500 million, probably on that level. They mm -hmm. didn't use a billion level model because uh, in these tasks that they are trying to get the model to handle, a lot of them revolve, uh, evolve real-time actions, like stacking blocks right. and stuff. So you cannot use a big model for that because the performance is not there. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's something that I talk about um, actually in the most recent 5-Minute Friday episode that just aired, episode 582. Um, in that episode, I talked about how uh, you have this trade-off between model speed and accuracy. Uh, and so when you're thinking about taking your model from a Jupyter Notebook, where it's performing really accurately, and you've got this amazing uh, AUC, but when you put that model in production, if it's really big, if you're using a giant transformer model, it's not mm -hmm. going to uh, produce results for your users in real time, or in that deep reinforcement learning paradigm that you're describing that, mm -hmm. that DeepMind is using. It's not going to be able to um, act in the environment in real time. And so while some of these giant transformer models are super cool and they produce amazing results, for your real-time production deployments, it's often going to be the case that you want a much, much smaller model that is way faster. Mm -hmm. um, not only does that provide results to your users in real time, but it's also cheaper for you to run. Right, right, definitely. Um, anyway, I've taken you off track. <laughs> we've, we've both taken off track which is fine <laughs> um, I need system 2 back to bring me back to where we should be in the conversation um, well but, that was super fun super I think fun. we're kind of talking about uh, we're kind of talking about <laughs> what has happened in NLP all the excitement oh, and where yeah. it's going right yeah where it's going that's what I wanted to do next <laughs> um, our system 2 helping each other out right here <laughs> nice. System two high fives. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, so exactly. So we've talked about the prehistoric age back with their super sparse bag of word models. Then we had the stone age with word to vec, um, single layer neural networks, mm -hmm. creating embeddings, and then maybe having those embeddings flow into LSTMs. And then we talked about the bronze age mm -hmm. that we're in right now, where we have these large transformer models, which are deep neural networks. They use attention to encode the context of words, and we get really exceptional results. And then you've already talked about the scaling law, mm -hmm. which, so that's one thing that I know is going to happen in the future. So without a doubt, and you give this five to 10 year guess, and I'd be interested to say, to hear why um, you speculate for five to 10 years, but you said that for the next five to 10 years, scaling model size is likely to give us 
huge improvements still in uh, what we can do with these large transformer models, not only in natural language processing, but also in other areas um, like machine vision alone or multimodal processing. And so, yeah, what do you think is happening next? Other, I mean, maybe in addition to or other than continuing to scale the Bronze Age up, mm -hmm. um, what do you think uh, the next age is going to be like, the Iron Age? The Iron Age. Um, I think there are two big parts in it. The scaling, continue to climb the scaling curve. That is definitely uh, still going to be the case. And, and the five to 10 years is my system one thinking, <laughs> just to put it out there, uh, right? Because, but a useful reference would be to look at the number of neurons and synapses in, in the human brain and compare that to the current uh, uh, top level AI model to see what, where, where the gap is, right? Um, so in, in order to uh, scale that further, I think, uh, specific to the current architecture in Transformer, um, there is one, the sequence length limitation that is still not oh, solved. Yeah. Right? So when talking about the, um, for the audience, there is a paradigm shift that happened in NLP from uh, fully supervised learning, meaning I need label data uh, and I'm going to just train on them and optimize, and there you go. And then it kind of shifted into pre-train fine-tune, which is uh, pre-train my model in a self-supervised fashion, a massive amount of data, and then fine-tuning that same model downstream using a smaller data side for a specific task. And now the third paradigm is called uh, pre-train uh, prompt and predict. And uh, so, so here the key point is, is prompting. So you have a model that known a lot, right? A lot of information is coded. Now, when you try to solicit information from the model, you need to prompt it. Um, so in GPT-3 style, you would uh, uh, say you wanted to compose a, a novel, and you would start off uh, with the, the beginning of the novel, basically, and then the model would go on, right? And that same paradigm actually uh, can be used for even solving math problems too. Like there are Papers out there was also given a pre-trained large language model. You show the man, show the model a couple of examples of how you would solve certain math problems. And then you prompt it again with, now this is the question, now give me an answer. And the model is able to spit out an answer following kind of the, the patterns that are showing the example. But uh, there is a challenge in uh, the amount of memory consumption, which is quadratic to um, uh, your sequence length. Basically, if you feed in a text, uh, right, a lot of these transformer models, typically the max sequence length is 512 uh, tokens. And you cannot go uh, bigger than that because that would just, the memory consumption would explode. But um, that's often not enough to right. uh, fully represent uh, the context that you right. uh, pass to the model to solicit an answer for. So that is still something that will need a breakthrough either on uh, the hardware, like how are we able to do it maybe in a distributed fashion more effectively, or it would call for a architectural breakthrough again, like maybe uh, a better version of attention that 
doesn't require uh, such uh, memory allocation. So yeah, that is on um, uh, the skill side of things. Um, and then the second, uh, and that is uh, really, uh, I, I don't have evidence that back me up, uh, entirely analogy-based is uh, how do we get more of system two in there, right? Mm. How do we get more, more planning, a meta-algorithm that help you to uh, solicit information more effectively? How do we enable the hybrid? Here is my knowledge base that's pre-trained. I'm going to right. be also doing very small-scale online learning, maybe in a reinforcement learning fashion or in a Bayesian learning fashion uh, that allow you to keep evolving your knowledge base uh, without like throwing away all that you've known because that is a, a, a problem in, in fine-tuning models is that sometimes you forgot about uh, all the good stuff yeah. <laughs> when you pre-train the model that you're fine-tuning it. How do we get that sweet spot? I'm keeping all this useful stuff, but I'm keeping learning. Yeah, that is a, a huge difference between the way that today's uh, machine learning algorithms learn and our human brains learn is, um, yeah, all of the, the weight shifts associated with pre-training a machine learning model mean that some valuable connections can just be lost because in, that, um, in this task that we're fine-tuning for, some aspects general aspects of language maybe aren't relevant but then in production they they suddenly should have been <laughs> mm -hmm. and and we've forgotten those things and so that's very different to how humans learn where uh, humans are able to keep piling things on top <laughs> right exactly yeah and there's also this um um the concept of confidence right how system one uh, is very heuristic based and, and biased and it doesn't really think about uh, what should the level of confidence be when I say this right. uh, versus system two actually has more of that concept. Um, so when it comes to like data drift or out of distribution, like I have actually never seen this before, right. uh, I should be hesitant in giving right. this, right? So that all needs to be happening. Yeah, the, the algorithm should say something like, um, I'm going to need to check with my supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> right. I actually don't know this one. <laughs> yeah. Go yeah. try asking another algorithm. <laughs> Here's a referral. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that'd be really funny. You're like, uh, yeah, I know this other algorithm uptown who's been working on this problem. Maybe you'd like to give them a call. Right. Um, I think they've been fine-tuned to a more uh, relevant task to what yeah. I've been fine-tuned for. Right. Um, <laughs> it would even be funny if, because uh, we have like Alexa and we have Google Home and we have Siri <laughs> at home, right? It would be funny if they can cross-reference each yeah, other. exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Right. Oh Super funny. Uh, All right. Um, so I love how we're um, personalizing these algorithms so much uh, and, it, and also our systems one and two, getting them involved in here. <laughs> so um, another um, tangentially related, completely uh, tangential topic to everything we've been talking about so far, but something else that you have been, uh, that I know that you've talked about before is this idea of Bauhaus for data mm -hmm. science. And so um, we're going to get kind of another analogy in the picture here. So Bauhaus is a famous German school of design. And what comes to mind for me when I hear Bauhaus is a minimalistic design 
It's useful, it's resource efficient, and it's mass producible. So I'm guessing that your Bauhaus for data science, it kind of, it, we want some of those principles in there. We want to have resource efficient data science that's mass producible. Um, how can we redefine or refine, fine tune the data science process mm -hmm. um, to better follow these kinds of Bauhaus design principles? Right, so for the audience out there, um, this is probably a, a very interesting shift of topic, <laughs> but let me give you a little more context. Um, this is basically my thinking, like working in the field of data science uh, for, for seven, eight years and seeing how uh, on the one side, you see all of these uh, technological breakthroughs, right? Uh, the theoretical breakthroughs, uh, exciting models coming out. But on the other side, the industry itself is also maturing, like in the sense of the ecosystem is getting bigger. You're seeing um, supermodel as a service. You're seeing a lot of automation uh, that's happening, whether it's ML ops or auto ML, and you're seeing uh, functional specialization within the field. Like uh, before, it's like data scientists, this one big hat, and you can be doing a gazillion different things. <laughs> Depends on where you go. Uh, but now it, it kind of become uh, more clearly defined, like the, these are data engineering responsibilities, these are uh, business intelligence responsibilities, and these are machine learning engineer responsibilities, and these are research data science responsibilities, so on and so forth. Um, so I've started to think um, where this whole field is going and what does that mean if you are a data scientist or you're coming into this field, right? Are we um, going to be, say, out of jobs <laughs> very soon because all the automation uh, is happening? And so I've been noodling on that myself. And one day I was at the uh, MoMA design store, the bookstore, and was reading a book about uh, design. Um, and it, from there, I got a very interesting analogy, which is Bauhaus. And uh, it's about how design has transformed um, the artistic creation and fit that into the modern world that has now become like every aspect of our life is influenced by design. But it used to be this fine art thing that only like very talented uh, elite people can create and a very small group of people can appreciate. Right? Art used to be like that. And it's kind of what data science used to be as well. It's like these very cool algorithms that small group of people understand and small group of people know how to utilize to create mm -hmm. value. Mm -hmm. But um, really, we've, we've gone to the point that uh, it's kind of matured enough to start thinking about uh, the design parallel in data science, which is... If you have a business problem and if there is a data piece to it that you can solve the problem with, then there is a need or demand for data science. And regardless of whether you're big enterprises or small ones, even a startup with two people, there should be the possibility to make data science useful at your organization. And that would mean as an individual data scientist or a small data science team, you're able to make a bigger impact by focusing on 
the uh, really human-centered parts, right? A lot of other stuff can be automated, and automation is happening, like in terms of uh, try these bunch of models and give me the best one, uh, automate my deployment pipeline, uh, even the test aspect, monitoring my data drift and all that, send me alert. So all those, all those should be automated. And as data scientists, we will benefit greatly from them, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But the part that's always going to be a data scientist's job is uh, tied to the domain, like the problem that you're solving, right? Very much like a designer, which should always be uh, listening and surveying the users and audience to really get to know their need and transfer that knowledge into a creation of the design and product. Similarly for data science, there is a domain coupled aspect of it that's always going to require uh, a human to be there. And how do you marry the business problem and the, the methods that's out there, whether that's state of the art or it could either be, uh, it could even be an old method, but you find a lateral uh, use case for it that, that can really work out. So you need to be married in both worlds to, um, to actually solve problems and make impact. Therefore, I feel this uh, Bauhaus for data science analogy at the center of it is to, um, for either a data scientist or data science team, sit really close to the problems in your domain. Keep an eye out for all the cutting edge stuff that's happening have a really uh, big chess box, utilize as much automation as you can, right? Uh, don't be an enemy of them. They're not going to automate our jobs away. <laughs> They're going to allow us to make a bigger impact. And then mm-hmm. make sure you're turning this flywheel as fast as you can. And this flywheel is that you learn about the business problem. You make experiments um, and you... Um, you learn from your experiments and then you deploy and make impact and then you continue the cycle. Um, by by knowing the business problem well and um, knowing the methods well, you're able to uh, spin that wheel as fast as you can. Oh, and there's also a third aspect of it, which I yeah. forgot to mention, um, is about forming partnership with uh, other people in your organization. And um, that is a topic all of itself, but I do think um, a data scientist should care about it. Like, regardless of whether you you have a, a product manager or not, uh, it's in everybody's best interest if you have at least a mind end to end mindset, like knowing what your user need. Uh, after you're producing uh, what you have, continue to learn what can be improved. Um, yeah, so that's the. Bauhaus idea. It's super cool. And the way that I first found out about that was from the end of your MLConf talk, which we've kind of been summarizing and riffing on so far in this episode. Um, So the talk was mostly about um, the prehistoric Stone Age, Bronze Age transition. But now we've been able to also talk about your guesses about the Iron Age, which wasn't even in that talk. And then yeah, getting to talk about your um, your thoughts here about how um, data scientists can be um, taking advantage of automation and specializing while also solving commercial problems in your Bauhaus framework. It's so cool. So 
Let's now uh, move on from uh, anything related to your MLConf talk, but <laughs> <laughs> but move onward to uh, like staying on this kind of idea of um, data science teams and careers. Um, I wonder if you have any tips for listeners who are getting started in data science. I think you have kind of a framework for finding one's path. Oh, um, yeah. Thank you for bringing it up. Bring it up because it is a topic that I'm very passionate about, and part of that is because I am past finding myself. Uh, still, right? I uh, shared with John early on that um, we know there are people out there, um, folks like Elon Musk, probably, who figured out what he wanted and what he wanted to do for the rest of his life. Like, well, very even early he. On. <laughs> at the time, at the time of recording, even Elon Musk seems to have cold feet about his Twitter purchase. So <laughs> I don't, I don't know what's going to happen between now and when this episode is released. But uh, in recent days, at the time of recording, he'd gone from this big um, Twitter deal to saying, eh, "I think you have too many thoughts." Uh, cold feet. So even he, I think, sometimes is pathfinding. In fact, right. I actually, before you get talking too much about the pathfinding thing. Mm. Um, I, I think that probably people who kind of the more you're straying away from the well-trodden paths, mm -hmm. the more your pathfinding path framework is probably helpful. So somebody like Elon Musk actually might find your pathfinding framework even more useful um, <laughs> for guiding decisions. I think like the kind I it's I don't know. I don't know who's out there. Probably not listeners of this show very often because because data science is such a fast moving field. It's such a new field. Yeah. Probably anybody who's listening mm -hmm. could make use of some pathfinding because they've either recently been finding their path or they're continuously finding their path. Right. Um, I don't know if we had some kind of, there's, there, there are careers out there that change maybe a little bit less, mm -hmm. but as technology changes and evolves, right. I think no matter what career, like I was trying to think in my mind, like maybe if you're like, a, you know, a local government worker, I don't know, doing some task that's been the same for the last few decades, but even a job like that, that mm -hmm. has been the same now in the, these coming years, these coming decades, mm -hmm. everything mm -hmm. has to change. Like right. there's no job that was, that existed 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that will be in the same 10 years from now. Right. Uh, because of AI and automation. So anyway, I think your path, finding framework is going to be useful to everyone. <laughs> That's great to hear. Um, because if you think about it, adaptation is actually at the core of like how Homo sapiens are successful, right? We've adapted so many times. Um, and when it comes to personal growth, um, this is also a very useful mindset to have. And I started thinking about it because I um, basically... I become a parent when I was really young, right? And you um, got into this struggle of, okay, I'm trying to figure things out for myself and also figuring things out for my little one. And I only have 24 hours a day mm -hmm. and I want to do everything perfect. What do I do? So that is a struggle that I've gone through myself. Uh, what made it worse is this society's pressure. And we probably find it more in China than in here is that they're saying, if you haven't figured out uh, what do you want to do or your career before 30 or, or even 25, like you're doomed. Like you should. Oh, no. 
Yeah, you're like you should go into college knowing what you want, study really hard, and then just go on that path, right? Um, oh. So yeah, that's probably would echo more with uh, people coming from that kind of culture. Right. Uh, it, it's a lot better here, but still there is the the pressure, right? If you're making a career shift, a constant question you'll be asking yourself is, oh. Everything is path dependent. I've already spent so much time in doing this. Now, if I change to this new career, I, I would have lost a lot. I would be behind. So all those thoughts are just very natural. But I have uh, a mindset that might help you get out of it. Uh, and I call it the, the long-term perspective. The long-term perspective. The long-term perspective. All right. Um, what it means is that uh, very few people, probably nobody, will be able to set a five-year, 10-year, 15-year goal, like a very clear goal for themselves, and then just be like, but around full speed <laughs> at these set of 10 goals. So that's not going to happen. What really happens in reality is you always start with hunches, hunches about yourself, hunches about what's happening out there in the world that might be a fit for you. So you start with very loose hunches. But uh, what's important is to be able to run quick, small experiments along the way. Uh, and those are like pretty much like in engineering, you want to be agile. Like you want to be agile when you are pathfinding. And that means right. it's uh, shifting from like a plan and implement mode. I'm going to plan really far ahead. I'm going to just implement. Shifting from that to be uh, test and learn. Like I wanted to, maybe I'm good at uh, writing or, or presentation, right? Let me test it out. Uh, let me write a little blog post or even a, a small article for my family mm, and friends and uh, get some feedback from it. So mm. continue to run these small experiments and the direction will kind of become a little clear. It's never mm. going to be uh, 100%, right? Uh, it, it's going to be jiggling a little bit, mm. but you will know roughly uh, your hunches will tell you that you're on the right path, roughly. Right. And it's also important while you're keeping running this uh, small experiments to start collecting fundamentals about this direction. Like, for example, uh, if I compare myself now versus when I started off in data science like seven, eight years ago, uh, I have a better understanding of my talent um, and what I enjoy doing. Right. So I am I enjoy learning a lot. I'm a fast learner, I'm very analytical. Um, I am very curious. So any job that would put me in like solely execution mode, like just do what I tell you to do, that would kill me. Uh, so I need a room for um, to, to do some creative stuff and have ownership. Right. So I learn myself better and I learn about the field better. Like what's what's demand it's currently having? Where is it going? Do I see myself aligned with that? So that are fundamentals that if you keep noodling on as you do your experiments, I guarantee you that they're going to become a little clearer as time goes. So, yeah, that is my, um, I guess, framework for, for the long term perspective. Either you're entering into data science or you're looking to make a career change. Um, just have that mindset is, is really helpful. Um, and then separately, I can uh, probably share a couple very concrete uh, tips that I use. Um, 
basically as part of my daily routine um, to uh, keep myself like mentally sane and stable. <laughs> <laughs> Please, I need those tips soon, right now. Oh my god! I love that pathfinding framework, Rong Yao, and some of your examples, they sound like they might have come from your life, like the idea of seeing if writing or talking is working. And mm -hmm. uh, so I know, for example, that you just recently started giving talks. And I feel so fortunate that you had that hunch that you could give talks, because your MLConf talk was so extraordinary. It was one of the best talks I've seen in years. And so you really are a talented presenter of this technical information. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to see how this evolves as you run more experiments and they uh, continue to prove uh, your hunch correct. Um, so yeah, my pleasure. And so another kind of aspect that I know about you that I think you might have some guidance for some of our listeners out there is around uh, parenting. So the pandemic has either helped or worsened work-life balance for many. And I think especially those with children have been impacted, uh, especially with things like schools closing mm -hmm. and all of a sudden your kid is at home all day, you're at home all day right. while you're trying to work. So you're a proud parent, you're an incredible data scientist and presenter of information. So what tips have you learned to keep a good balance while maintaining personal and professional growth. Mm -hmm. I, I think um, um, I, I do have a lot to say there because the pandemic, uh, for better or for worse, I, I learned a lot from it. Uh, one year, I stayed home uh, with my little one. I have a five-year-old monkey. Um, <laughs> it is, I, I see a lot of interesting parallel between parenting and being a very productive either individual contributor or a manager, like that human aspect. So I'll share two of them here. One is um, the power of being vulnerable. Mm. Um, and so I used to do this, uh, try to set up that like very strong image uh, of a parent, right? Like I can just do this and you should always uh, be strong. Um, but what I find helpful is that the moment that you become vulnerable, you actually are creating room for initiatives for other people. And mm -hmm. you're, you're loosening up the soil for, for collaboration, actually. And in my example of me collaborating with my little one, an example would be like, we've gone out for a whole day's fun. And by the time we're home at like 8 p.m., everybody's exhausted, right? And uh, it's very typical that he would, just uh, refuse to walk anymore. <laughs> I used to carry him and do everything for him. Um, and one day, I, I'm really tired too. So I, I just, uh, I let it out. I was like, Nike, I'm, I'm super exhausted too. I cannot walk. And magic happened from that moment on. And mm -hmm. he's actually started to say, you know, mama, you know, if we, um, if we just uh, uh, carry on for a little bit more, <laughs> Uh, we'll be home. And then he's even like holding my hands and walking me up the stairs. So that same thing uh, applies to being a, a good collaborator and even good manager is sometimes it's perfectly fine to be vulnerable. Like this is the stuff that I don't know how to do. I have little knowledge on. And the moment you, you do that, you're empowering other people to step in and offer their value and their expertise. Right. So 
that is one thing. And the second thing is about、um, in collaboration, always be curious and flexible, and then you seek common grounds from there. Because I think one thing you will learn as a parent is、um, there's never hundred percent perfect control, right? It's impossible to be a parent at the same time being close-minded, because kids surprise you all the time, and Often, case behind every single of their behavior, there is、uh, a reason.、Um, and if you remain curious and open-minded, and you learn about that, you will often see through the、mm. behavior and find out a way to collaborate. And that is the same thing I feel in an organization, whether it's within a team or you're collaborating across teams.、Um, remain curious about the other person's needs. And be flexible about the approaches, but often case there is never a closed door. Like you can always seek common grounds.、Um, yeah, so those are two interesting parallel that I see <laughs> in my work and parenting.、Um, the second thing I wanted to share for、uh, my pandemic experience is obviously how do I keep sane. Um, and be productive when you have a five-year-old jumping around in the house, or you're trying to do your work. So、um, I have a couple of concrete、uh, tips that are just、uh, part of my daily routine. I think、um, I would like to share、mm-hmm. with the audience.、Um, one is、uh, probably not a surprise. I found meditation really helpful. Oh yeah. Um, and I used to feel that I cannot get into it, right? Sitting there for even ten minutes, because、uh, there is a lot of、uh, I in in that exercise at the moment. I need to be focusing. I need to be not thinking about that. I need to watch my breath. But really, the、um, the power of meditation comes in while you are accepting the state as is. And when you are able to remove the I out of it and focus on the this, this moment, this is what's happening. This is the work、uh, that needs to be done. Then、uh, you remove a lot of the anxiety and stress tied to it, and you are able to get into the flow. Like people often talk about, like the, the flow, right? The state of mind where you cannot even sense、uh, time, and you're just into it.、Um, and I feel like the meditation exercise. However short they are, ten minutes in the morning or ten minutes before bed, help you to recognize your inner state. Oh, I'm actually thinking about that. Oh, I'm actually uh, consciously, uh, oh, anxiously planning for this all the time in the back of my mind.、Mm-hmm. Uh, see that, acknowledge it, actually relieve that burden off of you, and you can、uh, go about your work afterwards,、um, which is a lot easier. And also. Uh, related to、uh, how you prime yourself for productivity,、um, one trick I use is what I call a silly little target. So taking my uh, writing uh, thing as an example, right? I'm, try- I'm trying to write more,、um, trying to、uh, speak more,、um, but it it can feel like a very、uh, very scary task, basically, but 
all you need to do is to get started. And to get started, you can say, okay, I'm just going to have this one silly little target for myself today, which is I'm going to write 100 words. Um, right. It can about anything, and I put in a document, and I'm done. Yeah. So not focusing on the outcome, the result, um, will help you to get fear out of the door and get away um, the discomfort, which um, really help you to to um, start off with the, the experimental path that I talked about earlier. Um, and then you can use specific techniques like the Pomodoro. You're like, I'm oh, having yeah. so, so many things in my mind, but just let me set this Pomodoro for 25 minutes and I'm going to just get into it. Uh, that helps me a lot. Another priming trick that worked for me is um, exercise. So no matter how busy I am, I try to do... Uh, three times a week, uh, about 30 minutes each time uh, of exercise. And that kind of prime myself with, um, I find myself to be focusing a lot easier and stress-free after exercise. And that works different for, for different people. But um, basically the, the theme is uh, you need to find your own routine that keep you centered as a person. Um, and just uh, carry on your little experiments in, in your wonderful life. Nice. I love all of those tips, Rong Yao. Um, so I have so many more questions for you. We're going to have to get you on the show again sometime. There's so many things that we uh, you know, didn't have time to dig into, like even what you do at work. So uh, we haven't even mentioned that you work at CB Insights, um, <laughs> which is a platform that uses machine learning and data and algorithms um, to help large enterprises um, ask and answer compelling questions, uh, uh, as well as then find the answers. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, we won't have time to talk about in this episode, but I know that you have some uh, open roles that you're hiring for. So I wanted to mention those. It should be obvious from hearing Rong Yao speak that she's an incredibly talented uh, data scientist who would be wonderful to work with. So I don't know if you have anything else to say about uh, the hiring that you're doing right now, the roles that are open. Right. So we're looking for a data scientist buddy on our team. We are a uh, R&D team embedded in the engineering organization. We uh, do end-to-end -end development from question to uh, deploying something in production uh, is all happening within the team. And we're looking for somebody that has uh, solid programming skills, is fast learner. Um, it will be great if you have uh, ML and NLP knowledge fundamentals, and you're a great communicator, then by all means, uh, talk to us. So, uh, let's do interesting stuff together. Awesome. Yeah, sounds like a great role and no doubt an amazing team to work with if you're on it. Nice. And then so as a regular podcast episode listener, which is so flattering for me, I love Rong Yao. You mentioned before we started recording that you'd been listening to a lot of recent episodes. And so you already know what's coming up next as we wrap up this episode. It's a book recommendation. Do you have one for us? Yes. Uh, if I'm going to recommend one, it's going to be Range, R-A-N-G-E by David Epstein. 
cool, I think man. it will be particularly helpful if you're starting out on a career or you're making career shift. Um, you will find it very reassuring and uh, encouraging and practical at the same time. <laughs> cool, that sounds great. Uh, and then for people who want to follow you and hear your thoughts, you had such awesome thoughts today, technical things like natural language processing and also kind of professional development things like how data science teams could be structured or uh, more effective, as well as just general tips for uh, living a sane life <laughs> <laughs> and managing balance across everything. So lots of thoughts that I'm sure people would love to hear in the future. Um, how can people follow you? Um, I would say just uh, check me out on LinkedIn. That'll be the best way. Perfect. We'll be sure to include your LinkedIn page in the show notes. Rong Yao, I've really enjoyed you being on the episode today. Um, I've had so much fun, so many laughs, and learned a ton as well. Yeah, you're a really gifted uh, communicator, and uh, I hope to have you on the show again sometime in the future so we can check in on the amazing things that you're up to then. It's my pleasure too and my honor. Thank you, John. Ugh. Had an absolute blast filming with Rong Yao today. I hope you had fun listening to our conversation. In today's episode, Rong Yao filled us in on the history of NLP approaches from the prehistoric bag of words era through the word vector stone age to the large transformer bronze age of today. She talked about how the scaling law of increasing model parameter counts by orders of magnitude suggests will continue to obtain dramatic improvements in NLP model capabilities for the coming five to 10 years. She talked about how the coming iron age of NLP could involve overcoming the 512 token sequence length limitation of today's models, as well as meta-learning algorithms. She told us about her Bauhaus-inspired approach to data science that allows data scientists to take advantage of automation tools and increase specialization to solve commercial problems. And she briefed us on her long-term career pathfinding model, wherein we carry out small, agile experiments on ourselves to test our hunches of our own capabilities. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Rong Yao's LinkedIn profile, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 583. That's superdatascience.com slash 583. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the show. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Yvonne Siebert, Mario Pombo, Serge Massis, Sylvia Ogvang, and Kirill Aramenko on the Super Data Science team for managing, editing, researching, summarizing, and producing another deep and stimulating episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks. And I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon. <laughs>